Welcome to Lead Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Vitale. We have Andrew Filer here um, from Allstate Insurance. Many of you know Andrew, and he's been a friend of mine now for, I don't know, Andrew, say we met about a year ago, I'd I think say. It's been a year, but it feels like it's been like five in like the best possible way. I love that you say that because that's how I know like I'm truly like enjoy somebody. For sure. Um, if it's been like it feels like it's just been for forever, um, then I know I actually like the person. I don't know about you, but like probably people would say this because I am like on this podcast now and doing this, like that people would think I'm naturally an extrovert. Uh, I'm naturally like very introverted. So like I like people, but I don't like really like that many people. Um, but like, I feel like I have a great relationship with Agreed. you and something and we have a lot in common. Um, but you know, tell us a little bit, like give us a brief overview of your story. Many of our yeah. listeners will know who you are, but I think, you know, help us level set here for the rest of our conversation. Absolutely. I'm happy to. And thanks for, thanks for inviting me on yeah, and having course. me. I've been in the insurance industry for about 10 years. Uh, I, you know, I went to, to college and, and studied finance and economics undergrad and, you know, I, I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to work in finance. And I was serving tables. And, you know, one of my buddies was like, hey, you know, I'm working at this insurance company. And, uh, you know, he's like, the work is cold calling. It sucks, but I think you'd be good at it. And I think it's, you know, a great way to kind of get your foot in the door somewhere. And that was a State Farm agent. And so I, I took that job out of college and, you know, started my career in insurance, you know, at 21. And what I did was I just cold called businesses trying to get them to uh, give me their their drivers and their cars to quote their commercial auto insurance. And, uh, you know, it sucked and I hated it and I had no success. And surprised I didn't get fired, but I stuck with it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that I did because finally started to see success. And I was a producer for this guy at State Farm for a couple of years and eventually made my way over to Allstate where I, you know, got hired to be a salesperson okay. for the, the largest Allstate agency in the country and, and quickly started moving into management roles and then wound up working as the operator and, and running his business for really the last eight years until, you know, six to eight months ago, I split off completely on my own and started a consulting company and along with my own agency. And so, you know, that's probably a, a very condensed version of, of the journey, but I've been in the insurance yeah. industry for about 10 years, very much focused on growing and scaling agencies. All right. And so you started when you're 21. So like, it's been about 10 years. So you're, you're early 30, 30s. I'm 31 now. You're 31 yeah. now. That's what 31 I thought. Now. Okay. Yeah. And I'm 37 now for those um, that, that don't know, I get sensitive about my age, the older I oh, get, no. but um, <laughs> um, all right. But I'll, I'll say this in those who are, who know me well know, yeah. like, I'm not like, I'm not like a big, I'm not easy to compliment people. Like I always think people could do better, work harder, but like I have a true level of respect for you. And I think you, well, thank you are one of the people that I've met in the insurance industry, not just the Allstate world, but in the insurance industry that actually has their shit together, that knows what they're doing. Um, you know, we had lunch a few minutes ago and we kind of talked about a little bit about what I would call in uh, inauthentic nature sometimes of like insurance agents sharing numbers and stuff like that. And I think it's just, it, it, it's kind of weird to me um, because uh, there's a lot of ego and I think one of the things that the first time we met, like we, sh we shared a dinner together that someone yeah. else organized. And, you know, we kind of, with two members of your team, like really the four of us had like our own conversation, you know, from the rest of the group. And there was no ego ever. And it was so unusual for a very successful insurance agent. 
And I think that's part of the reason I really like you um, is there's no ego and it's there's also no bullshit. Like you're very transparent. And one of the things that recently has come up um, is you started a newsletter. Um, I subscribe to a few newsletters, but not many. Yours is one that, that I do. And like the first thing, like when I get it, it's like, it's just authentic. It's screenshots of like your actual reporting metrics, like from the Allstate reports, like you're very transparent. You know, do you find that other agents are less authentic than this? There seems to be a lot of ego. You don't have any. I'm just curious why. For a long time, I never shared anything. And, you know, I don't know why exactly. I think part of it was uh, when I was running, you know, that large Allstate agency, we always just kind of kept to ourselves. And I, and I think I had this mindset of, well, I don't want to share any of my secrets because if somebody knows how, you know, we're succeeding, that will kind of close the door for us to do the same thing. And then, you know, when I opened my own agency in 2018, you know, and I know there's probably some timeline overlap because I ran both for a while. Sure. And we scaled very quickly. You know, we just hit five years, went from scratch to 32 million. So zero. Zero. Zero to 32. Zero, zero customers. Zero to 32 million in five years. And, uh, you know, people would be like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I was just kind of like, eh, like whatever. And, I, and I, you know, we talked about this. And I think I used to have a lot of imposter syndrome around yeah. You know, yeah, it's not that impressive, or you know, it's it's not, it wasn't that hard. And I think when you look back, you sometimes forget the, the struggles you went through, and and, the, and then sometimes the successes that you had as well. So when it came time for me to kind of start sharing with people, you know, I wanted, I thought about what am I trying to achieve here, and so you know, a big part of it, just transparently, is you know, I started the consulting company. And if you want to be a successful consultant, people need to know who you are and what you're an expert at. And so I wanted to share that expertise. But something I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that whenever I shared my numbers, I was sharing a, you know, a legitimate screenshot of the actual numbers. And the reason that I wanted to do that was because I'd heard from so many agents that, you know, this person writes this many, like this many items, or this person's producing this much. And then we'd see kind of like the national leaderboards and those numbers wouldn't exist. And (laughs) it's not that they were lies, but it's possible that just the way that Allstate was doing the leaderboards didn't make sense. But what was important to me more than anything is that I think sometimes people create a benchmark that's not realistic, or they don't understand what would make that benchmark realistic. So somebody might be absolutely crushing it, but if they give no insight into how it's being done, well, if, if somebody is a smaller or newer agent who's trying to aspire to be that same thing, how do they get there, right? And it needs to be more than just, we'll hire this guru and pay them a ton of money and you can be successful like them. Because we, I think anyone who's been in consulting knows that that's not, that's just not true. That's not, that's not what it is. We're not miracle, miracle workers. We can help you with a specific goal and help you get there. But it's really important for people to understand what you can actually bring value to them, right? And so when I started sharing, I wanted to be very transparent about our numbers. I wanted to be transparent about what was going well, what was going poorly, what was going really freaking bad. You know, and then I wanted to share with people kind of the way that I thought and how I got there. It's definitely, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't self-serving, but you know, I try to add value anytime I put anything out. I don't want to just puff myself up or or share numbers for the sake of sharing numbers. That's not really the goal. I want to try to give people a roadmap because people gave me the roadmap and that's kind of the idea. So you said that, right, this is life. Nothing Mm -hmm. goes perfect 100% of the time. Um, I think that's um, with the ego part that I talk about um, with insurance agents that 
people don't share what's going bad or what's going, I forget what you just said a second ago, like really horrible or something like that. But I think that the authenticity is like the most important thing and like being like super transparent and right. I think it's also helpful for like everyone's emotional health, right? Um, we're talking to an audience right now of largely small business owners it's stressful. Um, you're balancing family, you're balancing your business. You have your family depends on you for income. Your employees depend mm -hmm. on you for income. Like it's a stressful situation sometimes, oftentimes, right? Virtually all of the time in a small Absolutely. business. So what's like, just be really authentic with this. What's going really bad right now? What's going, what do you want to, like, what are you working on to get better? Yeah. So, you know, I think you know, in the midst of us having an amazing year from a production standpoint, right? So we have had a record year for for new business and production, you know, in the insurance agency, and that's and that's been amazing. Uh, and and I think a lot of people use that as like the single measure of success in a business, which is crazy to me because, you know, ultimately we're in, we're in business to make money, right? We yeah. want to increase revenue, we want to decrease costs, and, and make profit, and, and and it's pretty straightforward. Yet production tends to be kind of the vanity metric that we all share because you know, for, for lack of a better term, um, it's, it's, it's an easy measuring stick, you know, comparatively to your peers, but also it's what, you know, I'm an Allstate agent. It's what Allstate tends to want us to, to focus on and, and produce that. And that's how they reward people. And so people tend to focus on that. What it's about though, is it's about revenue and it's about profit. And so, you know, if you, it, full transparency, something that's been hard for us is that towards the end of last year, uh, we took a massive rate increase. I think it was, you know, an average of 25%, you know, as high as 47. One wow. of the, Great things about that is that we'll grow eventually, but in the short run, you know, a lot of customers get pushed out into the marketplace to shop and, and leave. And, and that makes total sense, right? It, it's a basic economics problem. When price goes up, people's willingness to spend, you know, isn't always going to to match up with that, that price increase. So people are going to shop. And so what's happened is even though we're growing, you know, that, that premium has to bake in. And as people have left, we have to kind of cross the chasm, so to speak. So in the six months between earning in that increased premium and the people leaving, we've been in a little bit of a cash flow crunch. Like we've run in the red all year, you know, so if our goal is to make profit and then, you know, either grow and or reinvest back into the business or, or invest in other ventures, you know, we're, by that metric, we're failing. We've been running red all year. You know, the reality is, is that we've had to consistently balance. Do we want to continue growth or do we want to try and, and tighten it up and get get profitable? And, and we've continued to grow. Um, but that might not last the rest of the year, I think, with some of the challenges. If we don't get profitable in the next month or two, we're going to have to probably slow down growth to do that. And so, you know, that's been one of the challenges to, to exacerbate the issue, right? Is like we went into this year expecting to make significantly more revenue than we did last year, just based on the way that our compensation plan changed. And that has not materialized. And so we created a bunch of forecasts and projections based off this. And you don't know it, you don't know, right? It's like, and we we miscalculated the elasticity of demand, which is basically how many people are gonna leave, you know, relative to that price increase. And, you know, so that's, that's we've taken our lump on that. And that's been and that's sure. been rough. And, you know, we've had to cut a lot of costs in ways that don't affect revenue. But, you know, luckily we haven't had to lay anybody off and we've been able to keep it going. So, you know, I think that's been one of the more challenging, ugly things this year. So, and this is why I enjoy this conversation. Yeah. I knew I'd enjoy this conversation so much because like I could bring in a hundred insurance agents and ask them that same question and they would probably like think about it and I, I wouldn't get like that authentic answer. For sure. And it's probably surprising to like a lot of people like watching this, but it's also not surprising to them because they run their own businesses too and they know how this works. I think it's surprising to them because you share your production numbers, you, you, you know, you share the stuff and that people make assumptions. And I think this yeah. is like 
for the sake of all of our mental health, we need to realize that like everything isn't like the pretty picture that everyone puts out there all the time. And I think that's important. I think we need more people like you are very transparent about like the challenges in their businesses, make it like healthier for everybody. Agreed. Um, that's the level of authenticity you've always had. And that's why like I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. I have a respect for a lot of insurance agents. They're small business owners. They're like, as I always say, the backbone of the American economy. They're putting their own money, their own capital into this. There's something like really admirable about that to me. Um, but like this level of like just transparency is you know, like I would get this with like very close friends, but even very close friends, I don't think I would get them to like come on my podcast and like say yeah. that. I mean, it's completely unprompted. For like sure. I didn't know this. Like, I mean, we just had lunch for an yeah. hour. I mean, I, we didn't talk about this. So it's interesting. So as you, as you try and navigate this, we're in a challenging time in the insurance industry, obviously, right? Carriers don't want business. Every policy they sell, they're losing money on. Uh, I'm not really sure that like I agree with like the regulatory narrative. I have my own narrative, which I'll share like really briefly yeah. with you, which is insurance carriers didn't really do the right thing in the heart of the pandemic. Like they did it first, but they didn't go far enough. And when we have record profit years for insurance carriers, we have record bonus years for insurance executives in the middle of like, you know, arguably like the biggest, you know, crisis of like our lifetimes, uh, I think it's kind of a shitty thing for them to do. And I think they're they're taking what they deserve to an extent. Maybe we've gone a little too far, but this is a problem everyone's facing right now in this industry. So like any predictions on when it comes back to more normal? You know, I wish that I, I knew enough to talk intelligently about it. You know, it's, I, I think um, one of the things I'll say is that I think you you have your theory, and and one theory that I, that I actually really believe in is that I think it's a complex problem to solve. You know, and and the actuaries generally nail it, yeah. right? Actuaries generally nail it, and and I think that in this case, across almost every career, actuaries have not nailed it, and and I think that's not because they're not good at their job. I think it's just incredibly difficult and complex. Like the economy is really weird. It's like, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? It's like, we were technically, but it didn't feel like it. And then like, mm -hmm. then it feels like it and we're technically not. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of weirdness, like in terms of, of how to, to price things accurately. I think you see it a lot in the Florida housing market is that I think Florida housing market, uh, from insurance, from an insurance perspective has been underpriced for a long time. And they got two huge storms in five years. And, and I think now it's kind of caught up and people, rightfully so, are like, this is outrageous, but it's probably what it's just going to be moving yeah. forward. Um, because now they have more data for their actuary tables. And and I think it's the same thing on the auto insurance side. Is it, and, I, and I think that if it was just one company, I might think it was, you know, negligence or greed or something like that. But I, I think the fact that every single major carrier sure. is, is hurting, whether they're direct or agent-based, it tells me that it's it's a complex problem to solve. And, you know, yes, like inflation on goods has slowed down, um, but service inflation is not. And it's not supply chain anymore. Now it's labor. And, you know, I, I think it's going to continue to be rough. And and I think, you know, every state, every um, municipality is a little bit differently in how they rate. You know, some states have regulatory issues. Some states have pricing issues. You know, I think in, in my state specifically in Georgia, they actually took two straight rate decreases in 2020 and 2021, which mm -hmm. was unheard of for me as an agent. They rebated um, customers, which I thought was great, you know, but now we're having loss ratio issues. And, you know, not every agent, but I am and, and a lot of other agents are who, who grow pretty effectively. But, 
you know, I think part of it is that these insurance companies are trying to balance profitability and growth. And that is usually near impossible. And I, I think it goes back to what I was saying before about running in the red is, and you talking about me being, you know, honest and authentic about it is it's important for people to realize that generally you have to trade those two things off. You generally cannot be profitable and grow at the same time. You need very specific types of uh, circumstances for that to be the case. If you want rapid growth, you're going to lose money. That's why startups take VC money and they just bleed cash <laughs> and then they exit when they IPO, right? Yeah. And then other companies, once they IPO, they'll cut all the staff and they'll get profitable because they have to harvest the profit. It's very hard to do both, right? We're, we're trading profit right now for growth in our agency. And I think that that's what's happened with the carriers the last few years. They traded profit for growth. And I think they just went maybe a little bit too far. And now they're trying to get profitable again without slowing down growth too much. And, and that makes it hard because, you know, you can underwrite on, or you can underwrite on, on you know, technicalities of who you're going to take, or you can try to price it. And it's, it's a fine line between the two. So I think you got all these carriers trying to, trying to have the best of both worlds with growth and profitability. And, and it's just incredibly difficult and incredibly hard. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And it's a tough environment for folks um, to grow right now. Even agencies who want to grow because, you know, the carriers they're working with may not want to grow. So for it's sure. kind of a conflicting, you know, um, interest at this point. But, um, you know, I, I mean, personally, I, I think I think we'll see things start to normalize um, in 2024. And hopefully by the end of 2024, a much more normal. Like I'm confident in that. This time last year, everyone yeah. was saying January 2023, everything's going on. And I was like, eh, I think you guys are kind of crazy a little bit still. Like I don't see it like turning around that fast. No, I, I do. But like, I don't know. Like I, this is not my area of expertise for sure. But it's a challenging environment. We're all kind of in it together. But you're still... You're, you know, right. We're in lead clinics. So let's talk yeah. about like, like leads for a few minutes. And, and you've been really transparent on this in your newsletter. And I've encouraged some other agents to look at this, but you're still bullish on growth today. I am. You are still bullish on, on purchasing, you know, leads or calls or, you know, what your process is. You're still bullish on that. So kind of your process is far different than everyone else's that that I've seen, right? Like I work with a lot of agencies and I get to know their operations, right? I get to know as I we see the data come in, right? We, we get a good barometer of like what I would call like the health, overall health metrics of their For agency. Sure. You're actually tracking that like very specifically and, and you have for lack of a better words, a, a, a data operation, a data-driven operation. Can you, t has it always been the case? Has that been an evolution? You know, kind of how did it get to this point? Yeah. So I have four analysts today. Full time, so full time, you. you know, paid well. And it's been the best investment I've made, you know, in the business, I think possibly ever, you know, and it's, it's hard for me to say that because I've got some amazing people and who've come up with amazing processes and ideas, but it's the, the, the data, uh, professionals have been just transformative for the, for the business. And the way it came about originally was we just had, we had a guy, um, he, he's a consultant at De Deloitte now, incredibly smart, incredibly talented. He actually got hired to be a salesperson, um, you know, in the insurance agency. And he's just like, I don't really want to do this, but I think I could help you, you know, with like this lead stuff or like the sales metrics. And I said, okay. And he just started, you know, taking all the data. And I said, like, can you just like, give me something that shows me like these four metrics? And 
he came in the next day with like something way better. He came in like, <laughs> he visualized it in Microsoft Power BI. And I said, this is amazing. And so he just started kind of building from there. And then he, he left the organization and I felt lost, right? I went from having no data to having all this data and then managing to, uh, to that data. And then he left and I had nothing. And I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? So I hired an analyst and he was just slammed. So I hired two more as like interns that I eventually promoted into full time. And eventually, you know, they just diverged on what they did in the organization. But, you know, at this point we try to, we try to track and measure everything, you know, and some things are incredibly hard to track or near impossible to track and that's okay. But, you know, we use data uh, in a lot of ways. And, and I think when you, when you say like, if I'm bullish on growth, the reason I'm bullish on growth is because the way that we're, we're, we're that we grow is that we do everything with a very measured um, data focused approach, whether that's, you know, marketing data or financial data or whatever it is. You know, we've talked about this a million times is that, you know, a lot of agents are starting to figure out and track what their cost per acquisition is, right? Which is a great first step. Like, what is it, what does it cost you to acquire a customer? And that's really important because a lot of, you know, captive agents, at least, maybe not so much independent agents, but captive agents, they have a year-end bonus or a quarterly bonus they need to hit. And sometimes these agents go for broke to hit it. And it's really important just to know, you know, are, are you going to pay three times what to acquire your bonus of what you're going to get paid out? And and I think people are starting to realize that it's not, it doesn't always make sense to go yeah. for broke to get bonus. And so we always, we tra- we've tracked cost per acquisition forever, but you know, it, it's really about three main pieces, right? Is you need to know how long a customer stays with you. What's the average life of your customer? How long, like how long does it take you to break even on, on that acquisition? And then what does it cost to acquire? And if you know those three things and you can get those things in line, you can pretty much scale until those things are out of line. And so some years, you know, you run like a three-year break even. Some like Right now it's one-year break even. And so for us... Part of that is rate environment. Part of that is our compensation plan. You know, it's Allstate's compensation plan, in my opinion, is as good as it's ever been. I know not everybody shares that sentiment. Uh, I'm heavily new business focused. And, you know, so if you write a lot of new business, you get paid well. But, you know, we're running a one-year break-even, and it's extremely hard for us to look at a one-year break-even and say, you know what, I think we should slow down growth. Yeah. And that's that's a real, you know, if we were running a four-year break-even and we felt like we were working efficiently, we would absolutely slow it down, but it's hard, but it's that you've got to know those things. And I think sometimes agents see those numbers and, and it feels like it's in another language and it's really not that complicated if you just stop and break it down. And so they're, they're pretty basic numbers. You know, that's a, just a really good place to start for any agent who's trying to get a handle on, should I, should I spend money growing or should I not? And that's just really just a, a benchmark and a guide stick. But I think on, on the leads itself, you know, we, we'd probably buy from like 20 different providers at this point. You're, you know, lead clinic is one of them and we benchmark them against each other. Yeah. And I think what's most important is sharing that data with the providers. And we say, Hey, like, here's where you stand amongst the other 20, you know, providers. And they love that because they always want to be the best because if they perform well, you'll spend more money. They make more money. Everybody wins. And I think the natural tendency is for people not to share data and not to collaborate. And yes. It's, they keep their cards close. And I, I guess it's due to lack of trust or pe- feeling like someone in the yeah. lead industry is screwing them, which I get because like five years ago, the lead industry was extremely shady and slimy. I think it's gotten cleaned up a lot. Yeah. Um, they're still bad actors, of course. But, but yeah, it's just, you, know, you got to know where you stand and where you want to go and then figure out if it makes sense to try and bridge that gap or, or to go a different direction. So 
let's speak. I'm going to speak to captive agents, yeah. like, um, or about captive agents now, because I think this is a probably it's a big chunk of, of lead clinic business is is heavily towards captive agents. I think that captive agents are more prone to buying leads um, because captive agents have been told that, and that segues imperfect because I think that. The captive agents, I don't know, and I'm going to ask you this in a minute. How many of you think know all three of those numbers? Because I think zero besides you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, But outside of that, they're focused on the metrics that the carrier that they write for is focused on. And I think that everyone needs to realize, right, they're, they're, we're, we're on the same team, but we're on different missions, um, right? I mean, you know, they're trying to be make a profitable organization for their shareholders and you know agents are trying to make profitable businesses for you know the people who own the agency and I think that that's normal business right um, but you know they're focused on the numbers they get from them they're not focused on kind of making their own numbers right you, you can't get the numbers you're talking about from an all-state dash report or you know way back in the day when I was an all-state agent we call it I think it was smart C- reports or the CSRP CSRP the CSRP. Yeah, CSRP yeah yeah I think at some point that stood for customer satisfaction retention and profitability but it was customer satisfaction with all-state retention with all-state and profitability for all-state not right. for the agency so it's an all-state report like it's great Correct. for all-state but it's not necessarily great for the agency and I think you've done a great job of focused on the the agency metrics that you need to be focused on. So in all of that, you're you're consulting now. You're consulting companies called Next Call Club, right? It's Next Call Club, correct. And, and so in your kind of like intake process with new clients with Next Call Club, do you ask them if they know those metrics? I usually do, right? Okay. Um, so I think your point about all the Allstate reports and, and all the Allstate metrics are, is a good one. It's... And it's something I talk about with a lot of agents before uh, I agree to work with them. I say, you have to know what game you're playing. You have to know the game you're playing because the rules of the game you know, dictate how you play the game. And if you don't understand the game you're playing and then you don't understand the rules of the game that you're playing, you're just going to be completely lost. And I think sometimes, you know, myself included, I'm, I de- I'm definitely guilty of this. And sometimes you just want to get started. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are that way. Yeah. They get an idea. They want to just take action and get started. And I think that's amazing, right? It's like, get started and iterate rather than trying to make it perfect. But you've got to know the game you're playing. And as we come into, you know, whether you're a state farm agent or a farmer's agent or an Allstate agent or even an independent agent, right? Every carrier or every partner relationship you're going to have are going to, they're going to dangle incentives to, for you to do the things that they want you to do. And that makes total sense, right? People respond to incentives. That's capitalism at work and that's capitalism at its best. And I think sometimes people don't stop and think, and I didn't do this for a long time. I say, wait a minute. What if I just like don't play the game and don't go for their incentive? And what if it actually makes more sense for me to just like do this other thing over here? And that might change year to year depending on the rules of the game and how the bonus changes. But you've got to decide if if you want to play. So I always ask people that question. Like, you know, is your goal profitability is your goal to max growth so you can get a bonus what like what is what are you trying to achieve and then we go from there and i think that sometimes people know a lot of metrics um that are that people are that tell them to focus on and i think running a small business is incredibly hard and you know i've always been blessed to have like at least one partner at least one great partner and and that's helped me a lot you know a lot of people are just solo business owners and they're in it 
on their own. And, and that's incredibly difficult. I've never been in that situation. I've always had at least one partner and, and that gives you a sounding board. It gives you somebody to kind of test your ideas against, but you know, sometimes you're just so busy running the business. You don't stop to think, huh, should I be going after this thing that the carrier tells me I should go after, or should I play this different game? And it's easy to say that you should just do that, but it, but it can be hard and you just got to think about it and you've got to know the game you're playing because, and it goes back to the, those profitability numbers of just, you know, do I want to go for this or would it make more sense for me to say the bonus isn't worth it this year? I'm going to, you know, get profitable, focus on like a, a really, you know, under, um, represented niche and just go for it. And I think that's what a lot of independent agents do. And they make whole careers on being like a trucking insurance expert or being like Mm -hmm. a cyber insurance expert. And and us as captives, I think a lot of times we're trying to do everything and get everything every single time. And if you're everything to everybody, you're also nothing to everybody too. And so I think that's just one way to think about it. I think it's a great way to think about that. So data is one of the most important parts of your operation, you'd say? Like, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I mean, everybody who manages anybody, and then even frontline staff are all looking at data every single day, whether that's to to make strategic changes or just tactical changes on, you know, how they need to manage their day. So what metrics are like frontline staff? So frontline staff, we're talking about like actual insurance salespeople yeah, in your or, operation. Yeah, or what customer service at? type or representatives. What are they looking at? Um, they're like, you know, on the customer service side, it's, you know, how many calls did they take? Um, how many of those were first call resolutions? How many, um, you know, tasks opened versus closed, right? So we want to see, you know, how many things were resolved, you know, on one call, like I said, one call resolution or how, and if not, then how long is it taking for something to get resolved? And we'll use that data to find bottlenecks or things that need to be improved or or optimized. And then on the sales side, the two main ones are really how many quotes did they do, right? How many product lines did they they pitch? You know, we want our salespeople to be around 14 or 15 per day. And then they're also looking at, we call it a call gap chart, but it's a visualization of their day uh, as it pertains to the phone. And so it shows every outbound and inbound call. And what we do is we try to find gaps in that, in that, on that chart and say, Hey, what's going on in these gaps? And I think sometimes when people see it, they think it's, it's a micromanagement tool to say, Hey, like, why aren't you on the phone? That's not it at all. What we really try to do is we try to assume positive intent and say, Hey, if somebody's not on the phone and their whole job is to be on the phone selling all day, there's got to be a pretty good reason for them to not be on the phone. And that's where we use that data to start asking questions. Hey, like what is slowing you down or what type of, you know, hurdles or barriers are in the road that we can remove from you? Because the more of that type of stuff we can get off their plate and the more that we can keep them focused on talking to clients all day, the more we're going to sell, the more money they're going to make, the more money we're going to make and the better everybody's going to be. So those are just a couple examples. Do you find like in your like you you talk to other agents probably yeah. quite frequently, especially it's it's part of your business now. But even before it was part of your business, do you find that like I, I think like very honestly, I think that you know basically a unicorn in in your environment. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, I, I mean, do you feel that way too? Like, I, and let's even take it away because maybe like this visualization yeah. chart you just said yeah. sounds really cool, but like uh, that might be like over the top for like the purposes of my question. I don't think it's over the top for your business, but I think it's over the top for the purpose of my question. But how many people just at the most basic data level actually have a concept of it? I think very few. You know, I think it's, I think there's not as many, um, it should be every agent, right? Every agent, um, you know, should have this answer, but 
it's easy to say that. It's harder in reality to to execute on that because, you know, people need to be taught these things. You know, I, I have a finance degree, which gave me a lot of understanding around financial metrics. And then I, you know, I have a business degree, um, you know, got an MBA and that gave me a lot of, you know, just kind of general strategic metrics. And then over time of just like an interest in data, my wife is a data scientist. And so, you know, it's kind of been um, something I've always been interested in and been around, you know, and, and I think not every agent is going to have the same interests or same natural skill set. I do believe that, you know, everybody has like their own unique zone of genius, so to speak, right? Everyone's a genius at something and it just, we're not all geniuses at the same thing. And so I think that every agent probably should have, you know, a handle on, on some of these numbers, clearly not everything. Um, you know, I track way more than we really need to, but when I do need it, it's there. Even mm-hmm. if it's once a quarter, I, you know, I might go look at something. But I think it's on, it's on a few different um, people's shoulders, right? It's on us as agents to help each other and kind of say, hey, this is one way that we're winning. It's one of the one of the reasons I try to share a lot of stuff around data because I don't think a lot of people are are doing that today. I think um, carriers, you know, if you're if you're a captive carrier, need need to do a better job of putting not only the data in front of you in a way that you can digest it, but also you know, insights, because it's like, it's one thing to give somebody data, but if you don't know what you're looking at or you're not experienced with it and you have to draw those insights yourself, it, it's basically, it can be worthless, right? You've, you got to be fluent in data and that takes practice and that takes time and it needs to be something that's taught. And the more that people are taught, whether that's from educating themselves or the carrier going through kind of agent school, it's something that is becoming a bigger and bigger part of, of running a business. And, and I think agents are interested in buying in more than ever. And I think more agents than you would think are starting to get a handle on some of these numbers. And I think there's some, there's some new pieces of um, software coming out and there's some new vendors out there that are helping agents do this, making it accessible. Hey, give us, you know, this type of spreadsheet and we can give you some key metrics to give you that insight and, and handle on your business. And I would, I would definitely recommend that if, you know, if you're an agent and you don't want to hire me for consulting, right, look into some of those businesses. And, you know, I think there's like agency zoom is a big one that a lot of agents use. Performology is another one. I know we talked about lead Swami earlier today. You know, I don't, I don't know the owners of any of those people. Um, I don't use any of those services. I have in-house analysts, but not everybody's going to want to hire an analyst in-house. And so if you don't have a handle on your data, you know, those are a good place to start your search and, and see if they can help you because, they do make it a lot more accessible and a lot, and it's a great place to start learning. And if you are really interested in it and it is really helping you, then maybe you go out and say, I'm going to make an investment in an analyst, you know, because almost everybody I know in the insurance industry who's gone out and hired an analyst, that analyst has paid for themselves in the first three to four months. I agree with that. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I think, um, you know, something we talked earlier about before we started the interview was kind of you're consulting clients, but you kind of have a baseline of where you need them to be before you can start working with them. And, you know, I don't remember exactly what the threshold was, but I think that it makes sense, right? If you're not at a certain scale already, you cannot, you may not financially be able to afford an analyst today, right? Right. But these other services, and, you know, you you mentioned a few of them I've heard before, and some of my clients may use those. I know, you know, we talked a little bit about Lead Swami, and, you know, I think that they look at a lot of the metrics that you look at, too, and they kind of, it's a nice do-it-for-you solution. For sure. um, and I think so, you know, I say all that because, right, I was an agent. Um, yep. I've started all of the insurance agencies I've ever been a part of with zero policies. I, I've never 
and I'm trying to like think through this really quick. I've never made an acquisition. Okay. Uh, I've made many sales, but never an acquisition. Um, because we we know how to drive new right. businesses. Why we didn't need it, you know? Like, sure, if the, the great opportunity came, it may have been, you know, something we'd consider. It was never something that said no to, but the right opportunity never presented itself. And so, with that, I think that coming from a place of starting with zero policies, it's like this is a scary place. I have no revenue. What do I do? Now, I, you know, Andrew's telling me I need to hire a, a data scientist. This sounds like it's going to be someone I need to pay like a hundred grand a year to, and I don't have the hundred grand. And I think that these services are something that can accelerate you or, or get you on that path early. Because if you don't know your numbers, I mean, what the hell do you know at some point? You know, something I always tell agents is, You've got to change the way you manage your business as you grow. And and I think a general rule of thumb, it's not perfect, it's just every time you double, you need to either rethink how you run the business or you need to reorg. And the way you run a, a you know, a zero dollar scratch agency is different than you run a one million dollar premium yeah. agency versus two versus four versus eight versus sixteen. And I think a lot of agents you know, what you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of consolidation, at least in the Allstate world. And I think you're starting to see it in farmers. And it's been happening in the independent world for a long time is where yeah. there's a lot of consolidation. Uh, and I think agents who kind of get to this six to 10 million mark are like, what if I buy a 10 or a $15 million agency and get really big, really fast? And I think it's a great strategy. I think a couple of mistakes that agents make, and I think a couple of landmines that maybe listeners could could watch out for us first, is I think they tend to overpay. People look at this big book and they say, wow, I can go to 20 plus million and be like one of the big boys. And they'll pay you know, twice what they should because they feel like it's this unicorn, this opportunity, uh, or they just don't know how to value it, right? Both um, happen, but I think sometimes people are too eager. And, and, and I and I'm guilty of that, right? The first yeah. acquisition I made, because I've made six now. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, of the 32 million, about 24 million of that's been organic. But I always buy one and a half to around two and a half million dollar books. I try to buy small books. Um, but the first book I bought, I overpaid for. And mm. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was like, wow, this is such a great opportunity. And I don't want to miss it, right? I don't want to miss out on it. Until I realized how many there are always for sale and there will always be more opportunities and it goes back to what I talked about earlier. Is like it's important to understand how long is a customer going to stick around and what does it cost to acquire? Because sometimes I'll look at a book and be like, this is a really great opportunity, but the cost that I'm paying per item to acquire is twice what I could acquire for myself. And you, know, you have to factor time into that, right? You have to factor how long would it take for me take for me to acquire all these customers myself, but I shouldn't pay double, right? So I need to know how to value that book. And mm -hmm. it's not good enough to just look at you know, an agency multiple chart because yeah. that's just all arbitrary, right? Yeah. Like it's just people making deals and it's almost become like this self-fulfilling prophecy where people just reference the chart and the chart has become like this thing. It's like somebody's putting the, put this, you know, measuring stick in the ground and everyone's just using that as the measuring stick. And I'm probably being a little reductive and, and you know, I don't mean to You're offend not. any of the, of, of the brokers not. out there. I'm sure that it's not only that, right? I'm sure there's a lot more nuances to it. And, and the only reason I say this is because, you know, Danny, my business partner and, and I have done these acquisitions and, um, he usually does the valuation for us. You know, okay. he's building the financial models and, you know, we do it ourselves, yeah. you know, and, you know, we talk to the team and, and we decide what to pay, but a lot of people buy the books at, at too high a multiple. And I always say, look, you have to buy a book 
at the price that makes sense for you, not what makes sense for the seller, not what makes sense for somebody else, what makes sense for you for what you're trying to accomplish in the long in the long term. That's the first thing is people overpay. Second is when people get big fast, they don't reorg. They try to run their business exactly the same way that they did before they acquired that business. And then they they start, they stop growing. They're like, oh my God, this is a mess. I have all these customer service calls. You know, they're cleaning up mistakes. And what you have to just realize is that every time you double, you got to change how you, how you operate and you need specialization and middle managers as you continue to, to go up. And so when I talk with, like when I talk about people I'm consulting with, you know, I do, I, I do a couple, a couple things, but you know, the two main ones are, I help people build outbound calling teams, you know, so a lot of people are starting to use telemarketers for leads, which I think is a great strategy. You can buy a call or you can generate that call yourself. And a lot of people are offshoring, you know, to the Philippines, which is fine. I know a lot of people who have, um, a lot of success with that. Like one of my friends has, you know, a company called, you know, easy, uh, live leads that he does that and has a lot of, you know, customers that have a lot of success. I do everything us based though. And, you know, so I always tell people like, look, like it's not going to be as cheap. It's going to, it's going to cost more money, but it's going to be fully us based. They're going to be in your time zone. There's going to be no cultural differences. There's going to be, um, higher performance as well. There's going to be less TCPA risk. And hey, you know what? Like that's another job that we created in the US. And I think that resonates with some people, not everybody. And yeah. so when I think about an agent that's a fit for me, it's it's typically somebody who's got three or four dedicated salespeople and understand that we might not be the cheapest, but we're going to give them the best ROI. You know, you're going to pay more for quality. And if you want cheap, that's not us. But if you if you want quality and you want advice and you want you know, from people who've done it, that's what it is. And then I think on the one-to-one consulting side, you know, when I first started doing this, um, you know, smaller agents would ask for help and, you know, I would say, okay. And I would, and I would bill them for it. And what I've started to do now is if I, I'll, I'll do a kind of like a 45 minute or one hour call with them. And if I feel like I can't adequately help them with what they need help with because it's just either not my specialty or they need to get a few kind of like things in line first before I can help them. You shall just try to give them an hour of free advice and then refer them out to somebody. And really what I'm helping agents do is kind of go from like that seven to 10 million to try to get them to 20 or 30 million, right? It's, it's, you're a pretty good size agency. You've been around for a little bit and you want to take that next step and start scaling up. And that's what I'm there to do. I help them get a handle on their financials, handle on their metrics, right? Get all those things cleaned up so then they can scale. Because if you get, again, if you get those metrics right, you can scale endlessly in theory. Yeah. And I mean, like something you said there is really like, uh, I'll say you're, you're, you're preaching the lead clinic gospel here, you know, right? Price is only relevant in the absence of value. And if you deliver Absolutely. value, right? I, I tell every potential client that we work with, like, and I'm super direct. I'm like, we're not going to be the cheapest. I am competitive though. And yes. I want to be your lowest cost per acquisition vendor. I do not care about what a cost per lead is. Um, like, it's not interesting to me. I don't want to talk about it. Like, I'm not selling $50 leads, but it doesn't matter, right? It matters if it converts, if it works. And yeah, there has to be a baseline we start at. We can't just go crazy, right? And say, all right, you were buying like $2 garbage. We're going to now sell you $20, like best of the best. Like maybe there's there's a balance, but you have to measure value. Absolutely. And that's like getting back to the data. Like if you don't know... How are you measuring? You're just, what are we doing? I think 
I love small business owners because like I've said, like we, and as you just said, right, we're hiring another person in the US. Like these are small businesses. They're the backbone of the American economy. They're creating jobs in our community. There's something admirable about that, right? My family is like, my grandparents were all small business owners. Like I love it. Like it's in my DNA. Like I'm passionate about it, but it's also frustrating because it's like, are these guys, we need to get them to like understand the numbers behind it and more so like dig a little deeper than, I don't want to call them vanity metrics, but really vanity metrics. It's it's not, they're not vanity metrics. They're just other people's metrics. They're also other people's metrics. metrics right. Yeah. So I think that that's, there is something admirable to these small business owners. And it's great that we have like really smart people who've been very successful at this who are now like coming out and, and helping them. There is that component. And I think that like what you're doing makes a lot of sense because you're helping these people and then being like, all right, I can't help you from here to here, but I can point you in the right direction from how to get from here to here. And then once you get here, I can help you get from, you know, 10 million to 20 million or whatever you just said. And, and, you know, that's, that's kind of where the magic starts to happen. You said two things and I think, um, let's do some myth busting, right? It's, uh, you talked about this idea of cost per acquisition. And I think, I think that's the right way to think about it. And, you know, I, I've talked about that a few times on this podcast already, but, um, you know, the cost per lead is something people ask me all the time, what do you spend per lead? And, and I tell people very honestly, I pay a dollar for a lead. I pay $15 for some leads because at the end of the day, the cost per lead doesn't really matter. It's, the cost per lead can can matter when you're first getting started with a provider, right? And you, you don't want to spend $15 on a lead right out of the gate if you have no idea who they are or like the quality. It's like it, it, if there's no relationship there, yeah, you're going to want to keep that lead cost kind of low because you want to hedge your risk, which exactly. makes complete sense. But what happens over time, right? And if you're doing it uh, the way that I know we do it, right? The way that I help people when I consult with them or when you're you know dealing with your clients is you know, you start kind of in this middle ground, cast a wide net, and then the stuff that's not performing well, maybe maybe we try to get that at a lower cost, right? We try to figure out, you know what, or if we can't get it at a lower cost, well, that's okay, right? Because it's not worth your time. But the stuff that's good, maybe you actually pay more money to get more of that or, or get as much of it as you can because if a lead is three times the price, but it converts at three times the rate, well, then cost per acquisition in theory should be the same. And yeah. it doesn't really matter at the end of the day as long as long as long as you're converting them. So I think there's this race to the bottom on cost per lead. And you just, again, like everything else, you got to know there's trade-offs, right? A $1 lead could be amazing, right? You might get lucky and it could be amazing, but it also could be low intent and crap. Yeah. And they're looking for a gift card or an iPad or something. And you're, you're just lighting your money on fire and even worse, wasting your people's time and burning them out on, on bad conversations. So that's the first myth. The second, the second one um, is about this idea that people think that the, the leads are magic, right? Where do you get your best leads? I hear that all the time. And I tell people this in almost every, almost every time I, somebody gives me a soapbox to stand on, like right now, um, I say, look, the leads are definitely a factor, but there are so many things that go into running a successful lead program, right? It's, it's not only the leads, it's your CRM, it's your contact strategy. You know, it's spam avoidance. It's, you know, how do you stay in front of people? It's your your callers, your outbound dialers, do you, do you have telemarketers or your salespeople calling or are they, are the leads just sitting there, um, not getting called, you know, um, once you do talk to them on the phone, are you having the right conversations? Are you asking for the sale? Are you following up? Are you working next days? There's so many things that go into it and everybody starts with lead quality. They think it's the leads and it, it's actually the opposite, right? The leads matter, 
but the weeds don't matter that much if your process is broken and if, and it, or the process doesn't matter or that you know, the weeds don't matter if your salespeople are great and the weeds are great, but nobody's calling the weeds. And what we've kind of figured out is that the weeds are almost like the last piece of the puzzle, right? Get everything, you know, obviously you want to get started. You need the weeds to learn, but don't expect the weeds to be kind of like the, the magic pill or the silver bullet, right? You need those leads to start learning about the process, to learn about the contact strategy, trial and error, and once you get those other things down, the weeds can make a huge difference, right? But, you know, I know for a fact, like, you'll be transparent with people and be like, hey, this $12 lead, you know, is not the same as this $1 lead. And I'm yeah. not just charging you 12 because I can charge you 12, right? Wow. Some, some guys out there will do that. They'll get a, they'll, they'll charge you $12 for a lead that they probably should have sold for four. And, you know, they'll just take all that profit and they suck. And then they, you cancel with them and they just kind of run off and you run off. And then everyone has a bad taste in their mouth about the vendor or weeds in general. But I think those two things are really important is like, you know, the weeds are not magic. The weeds are just a piece of the puzzle. And second is like, there's this artificial race to the bottom on weed cost. And weed cost is definitely a factor, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I talk to, it's funny because I, I talk about the race to the bottom all the time. And, um, you know, and, and when I meet with potential new clients, um, and right, I think we have a similar approach, right? We're, we're probably uh, more selective in the clients we work with than anyone thinks when they have our first meeting with us. But, you know, and I tell people sometimes, like, if, especially because we talked about ego among insurance yeah. agents, some of them are a little too much ego. And like, I'll be like, I'm very direct. Those who know me, like, yeah. know sometimes it's like too much, but I'll be like, okay. We're confused right now. You think you're interviewing me. I'm also interviewing you. You don't seem to be on For your sure. best behavior. Stop being a jerk. Let's talk like people. We're both humans. We're on an even playing field. Like, let's just be nice to each other. So I think it's this point of like mutual respect at some point, too. And I understand that agents are guarded with vendors because vendors have screwed them for a long Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I get it. I am an insurance agent by this is my business, right? I came into lead generation. I just, I tell everyone this, I just wanted to learn and see how bad I was getting screwed. It was a tolerance thing. If it was 5%, I wasn't really going to care. If it was like 50%, I was going to say, oh my God, I've wasted millions over the last decade. Like, yeah. Peter, why didn't you do this a long time ago? And then I kind of fell in love with it because it's so secret. It's so black box. It's no one talks about anything. Yeah. I'm like, I, I like played like private investigator. Like, and it was just, it was like, the coolest hobby that like I eventually like turned into a business. So I understand the distrust. Um, yeah. But what do you encourage people like when they're going to work with a vendor? Like how, how does an agent, how do they get that relationship? And let's not talk like, and this isn't, well, all right. It is a pitch, right? It's easy right. for me because like I am authentic. I want to have real conversations with people. Like I think the lead clinic experience, I know the lead clinic experience is 100% different than our competitors. So I'm really humble. So sure. I've got to like bring myself back around. Like, no, 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 I can talk about this. This is a good thing, but I'm not like being like, you know, arrogant or it's a completely different experience, but let's say I didn't exist. How would someone, how would you approach a vendor? I call them the usual suspects when I talk about like, you know, the lead vendors everyone knows. Um, you know, how does an agent build that? And not an agent who's, you know, one of the largest operators in the country, but like, you know, a smaller startup or just bought, how do they make that connection with a vendor? How do you do that? I, I think lead, lead vendors specifically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think so. So I think one one thing is to, 
get a referral from somebody you know and trust if you can, right? Because, and, and ideally not to the company, to, to their rep. Because if they, if they have a good relationship with a lead vendor, it's probably because they have a great rep who's working with them. Yeah. Because what a great rep at any lead company will do is they'll ask you for your disposition. Okay. So, you know, and if people don't know what disposition is, it's, you know, was it a do not call or a bad phone number or no contact or, Oh no, I quoted it. Or I, you know, I quoted it and I sold it or I quoted it and I didn't sell it. Right. Sharing that, that disposition, um, will help that rep optimize your account because say we're buying from, you know, Everquote or quote wizard and, you know, we're buying from Quote Wizard or, or Everquote. And we're just getting a, you know, a multi-car homeowner, right? But they might have a hundred websites where they're generating leads or buying leads or, or whatever they're doing. And, you know, the agent's not going to have the ability to pick and choose which website that comes from. But that rep might be able to come and say, wow, like, you know, 80% of the bad numbers came from one or two websites. We'll get rid of that and, and immediately increase your quality. So finding a rep who does that. So, but if you're not, if you can't get a referral, right, also just understand that just because people on kind of like social media say a lead company sucks, doesn't mean that it actually does. Like I see people on social media talk all the time about how Everquote's awful or Smart Financial's awful or, all web leads is awful. Well, I buy from all three of those and they all have great success metrics. And, and a big part of that is that, you know, we optimize the account. And so I think whenever you're, you're going into a lead vendor, you, you have to, to vet them and say, hey, what I'm looking for is a partnership. And that's what you're looking for at lead clinics. What I'm looking for at Next Call Club is like, I want someone who treats me like a partner. Uh, I don't want a client. I don't want to be your vendor. I want to be a partner and I want it to be back and forth and, and have understanding that if something's not working, Let's share it with each other and let's fix it. I'm not afraid of bad feedback. I know you're not afraid of bad feedback. Oh, I love bad feedback. And, and, and inviting that from the agent gives them confidence to do it. So if you're the agent, find somebody who is going to be a good partner for you and, and, and say, hey, I'd love to do biweekly meetings where I send you all the results of my data so you can make it better. And I can't tell you, I know a lot of the reps at these companies and they love that. Those are their favorite clients and those are the people who have the most success because... Yes, there are companies that will, you know, get a thousand dollar deposit and that's how the salesperson gets paid. But most people are getting paid on recurring spend on your account. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that goes into the integration for these lead companies to get you set up. So they're spending all this time, all this money, all this effort to get you to buy leads. And if you buy a hundred leads and then turn off, that's not profitable for them, no. right? It's in their best interest to keep you happy. And it's in your best interest to sell the leads, right? And that's why you're, you're doing this in the first place. So I think you've got to ask for that partnership. And if you feel like you're not getting it, you know, ask to talk to, to, to their boss and ask for a new person, right? And just say, hey, before, I'm, before I want to cancel, you know, could I have a different rep to see if I can have someone help me optimize my account? I'm really looking for, you know, bi-weekly at first and then maybe monthly after it kind of locks in. But if you give those vendors um, the benefit of the doubt or you assume positive intent, I think that you'll have a much better result. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think that's something I always look for, partnership, right? For sure. And, and like we turn away, we turn away a good chunk of business. And a yeah. good chunk of that business is folks that don't have the disposition data ready. It's critical. It's critical to measuring, you know, success. And, and that's what we want to do. We need optimization. Absolutely. Andrew, when I was an Allstate agent, like, so we're going back to like 2015, which, you know, as I said earlier, I get sensitive about my old age. Um, so yeah. it's like, it seems like a long time ago now, but like in 2015, I was buying calls 
um, live transfers primarily at the time. I don't think I was buying inbounds. Hell, I don't think I knew what the difference between the two was. And, and some people might not now know today. So let's, I'll talk about the difference. Yeah, let's right? talk through that. The, you know, warm transfer is someone who's generally calling out on a data lead or making an outbound call and then transferring that call in your agency. Whereas an inbound is a consumer clicking usually clicking a number on their mobile phone, like when they Google something and it's a click to call and then they're getting transferred to you. So they're two different real approaches. Um, but I was buying calls. Calls were competitively priced back then. Not so much today. It was amazing back wasn't then, it? wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the ROI was great. It was um, dumb. Yeah, it, and the markets evolved and really my journey to building Lead Clinic was, I was on a mission really just to be a more sophisticated lead buyer. Literally what I told everyone, because it was true. Um, at some point it evolved and I'm like, oh, okay, I think I'm going to turn this into a business. But I was on a mission to be a more sophisticated lead buyer. And I said, calls are really expensive. I want to I move back to data leads and see if it can work. Now, and it can, obviously, as we know, we both know. But I don't think you've ever been a call buyer, not a significant call buyer. You've chosen like do this like in-house internally. And that's like what you're doing with Next Call Club. Talk to us about why that is. Like, what's your decisioning logic there? Back in 2015, I did buy some calls because like you said, they were great. I think we were paying like 20 bucks for yeah. a call back then. And, and that was great. You know, now I, it's obviously, I think last year it got in, insanely expensive. And I think more people have entered the market and I think costs are, are still high, but getting a little bit more reasonable. And I, and I think there's a lot of factors, you know, supply uh, went down due to a lot of, you know, carriers restricting you know, who, you know, agents can buy calls from demand went up as people started getting paid more for, on new business. And all this kind of created this like perfect storm. Um, but I mean, even back in like 2016 or 17, I, I stopped buying calls because they wanted 40 or $45 a call. And I didn't feel confident that I could make a, a meaningful ROI at a $45 call compared to what I could do in house. And so when we first started doing leads, we had all these kind of like junior salespeople who really didn't understand the product yet. And, but they were selling policies and they were making the outbound calls. And what we started to do was we started to take all of our new salespeople and said, you know what? Like while you come in for the first month while we're training you, whatever, we're going to have you make outbound calls and just transfer to the salespeople. And it worked extremely well. And, you know, so we just kept doing it. It, it was initially just kind of like a training ground, right? Let's get, let's make sure they'll make outbound calls because we wanted our salespeople to make outbound calls. And when I took over the sales team, they were used to getting inbound calls from like direct mail or like societal events. It was really hard to get those tenured salespeople to pick up the phone, dial out on a lead, overcome objections or get hung up on. And so the telemarketers, you know, and we, and we don't refer to them as that. We call them sales development reps for a number of reasons. Um, but they were a bridge you know, from the tenured sales rep who didn't want to make outbound calls to the new, quote unquote, new sales rep that was going to make outbound calls. And so over time, those as those outbound call reps um, moved into sales roles and they started dialing along with the team, we just always had these outbound call reps. And then we started to move away from it for a while. And I'll never forget sitting down with Peter, who is, you know, one of my partners and he runs our entire sales organization. And he's like, I think we should bring back callers because we went away from them for a few months. And I was like, well, let's just like do the math on them. Let's just see if this makes sense to invest because we had hit kind of, uh, you know, a, a tight year. It's like three or four years ago. We had gone away from it and we were like, let's kind of cut that out. Let's just, let's save some money on it. And it was a classic example of being penny wise, pound foolish because 
it was like six months in, we're like, maybe we bring callers back. We did the math. And what we realized was that we were generating our own tra- like kind of transfers at like anywhere from like 15 to $23. And I remember sitting there with Peter as we did this math and we're like, God, we're so stupid. God, we're so stupid. And, you know, inexperience is probably the right word. Um, yeah. But it was a good lesson for me to say, you know, I need to be thinking not about the cost of things, but I need to think about the cost and the opportunity cost. What does it cost me if I don't do this versus if I do this, right? What's the trade-off? Do like a pure scenario analysis. And so as I was thinking about getting into consulting, I tried to think about what we do really well. And and one of those things that we do well is we have, we always have a full-time outbound call team. So we have six people for our agency and they're all US-based. We actually pay ours $20 an hour, Um, you know, not immediately, but if they're good, we move them up to that, that role. And there's, there's metrics to hit that. And people think I'm crazy for paying that much. But what I tell them is like one SDR, one sales development rep for us, gets 20 to 25 transfers per day. Wow. And our salespeople, they do call the leads now, but not not really because our, our SDRs are keeping them so busy. So when we started Next Call Club, you know, we, we tell other agents, hey, you should probably pay around 15 an hour, um, which at first was you know, this is like six, eight months ago, I think $15 an hour felt like crazy to a lot of agents for, for an outbound car. And they're like, you know, anybody can do this. And I said, you're wrong. Um, any, not anybody can do this or else you would have already done it. And they're like, you're right. <laughs> you know, and I don't say that to be a jerk. I don't say that to be snarky, but I think sometimes we, we say, oh man, they're just telemarketing, right? Which is why we don't call them telemarketers mm-hmm. because does anybody aspire to be a telemarketer? I don't think so. No. I don't think it's an aspirational no. title. I think when you think of a telemarketer, you tend to have negative connotations. So we call them a sales development rep, which is industry standard for tech. Um, and a lot of people are trying to get into tech and it's very hard to break in even as an SDR, you know, basically an appointment setter in tech. But we always tell people like, hey, you can come in as um, an SDR for us. You can get licensed, become a sales agent, or you can go into tech or we'll help you with whatever it is you need to do. That's the really long answer of why we don't buy calls because for us, the most I'll pay for a call is like 35 bucks. So most of the time people will call, call me to sell calls and I just say, look, like if you can give me a call for $35, I can maybe justify it because I know that I can generate it at like, you know, like I said, 15 to $23 and I'm willing to supplement in a different way, especially if it's an inbound, not really a warm transfer. If it's a warm transfer, I don't bother because that's just what I'm doing in house anyways. Sure. And I have full control, but an inbound, you know, a little, definitely different. Cause that's someone who's ready to talk always. Yep. Right. But that's why. And so when I work with clients on next call club, we want to help them build this. I always say, look, we're not the cheapest. The investment might be higher than you expect, but if you want to run sub $20 cost per transfer or per call, it's a great solution for you. And, and there's times where people are very interested, but I don't think they're a good fit. I don't think that we can, um, get them the numbers that they need to make it worth it. Not because we can't deliver the calls, but because they're not going to be able to take the calls at a rate in which it's going to let them sell and make the revenue that they need. So in that case, I usually recommend them to buy calls. And I say, look, when you get to this point, let me know, let's bring this in house and build it yourself. But I think it's a classic reminder is like, you should always ask yourself, should I build this or should I buy this? Right. Don't default to buy, don't default to build, but ask, should I build or should I buy? That's really, it's a more insightful answer than I, than I expected. I don't know why I expected less <laughs> when dealing with you, but like that was a really insightful answer because like I think about that now in like a lot of things that I'm doing, like internally, like business decisions, like I'm going to make next week, like 
And a lot of it is, do we build or do we buy? And, you know, I mean, it's a little different for us because, like, we're essentially in the software space now. Right. So it's like building it can be really expensive. Buying it can be really expensive. There's trade-offs and there's you, – you really have to make that decision. And – but I think that it all comes down to scale at the end of the day for, for insurance agents. And if they don't – what you just said, right? If I can do all this for them, but they still – can't get to their result, it's not a good fit. Agreed. And there is a better path for them to get to the next step. So it's almost like, you know, we start at zero, we need to be at like, let's call it level two before we can unlock, you know, the cheat codes to get from level two to level 10, but we got to get you to level two first. And there's a way to get there though. And I think that's the way we have to look at it with insurance agents. Um, and I think another big takeaway that I, I we didn't talk about earlier after you said it, but like every time you double, you have to reorg. Yep. Yes. I, I've never thought about it that directly, but I think about it in lead clinic all the time now. Like every time, like, right, we're a, we're a startup that has evolved from zero customers to many customers. And we've, we've made that, we've made adjustments all along the way, partially because I, I love to adjust everything all the time and I never like You're a tinkerer. Still. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a tinkerer yeah, a big tinker. time. Yeah. And I think that's really the success of what we've done is like, there's always a better way. I'm not convinced the way that I thought about something two weeks ago was the right way to think about it. Um, and I'm not convinced the way I'm thinking about it right now is the right way to think about it. Like, it's just you have to, you have to do that. So is a tinker, is that a good thing or a bad thing in your mind? I think that you need a tinkerer. But I think that if you're a tinkerer and no, there's nobody there that either can reel you in yeah. or that you won't, or if you're not a, a tinkerer who will listen to people around you who are smart, yeah. I think it can be dangerous because good things take time. I think that if you're a tinkerer and you don't listen to anybody and you're impulsive, things don't work out because you're constantly changing things. You could, sure. you could come across a billion dollar idea, but if you don't execute on it, it it's not going to matter. So... I would just always say, like, I think I'm a little bit of a tinkerer, not not too much. I like to ideate, but I've got a couple people around me, like Peter and Danny both, um, do a really good job of being like, hey, I think it's a cool idea. I think it would be very hard to execute, or it's not core to our business, right? Mm -hmm. And and I really trust them when they say that because I know that they're going to tell me if they if they're like this is something we should absolutely do, yeah. right? Um, but if you don't have that and you just act on it, or people you know don't speak up it's just chaos, right? So it's like, tinkering is good, but it's like anything in life, right? Moderation is is important and, and knowing where the line is. But one thing, like, you know, that I will say is that I think you and I um, are very like-minded. And I, I think it's important, you know, for agents out there listening to know that like not everybody has the same goals, right? Yeah. Like some people want freedom and they get there with money, right? So you need to, to optimize for profit and, and try to maximize your profit. And like, that tends to be like what I do because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, long-term, I'm trying to grow. Um, so I need my margins to be right so I can continue to afford that growth, right? Yeah. I'm not going to post uh, a profit at the end of the year, most years. Um, we should be around break even with growth. And that's kind of our goal. Some people are going to want to run at like a 20 or 30% profit maximization and, and don't care that much about growth. And that's okay, right? But I think it's also, some people are at a point where they've been in the business for 20 years and yeah. they don't care that much about profit. What they're getting is fine and growth is fine. And what they want is freedom of like their time or relationships. And sometimes like a call might be more expensive or the ROI might not be better, but it's just easy. You can turn it on, you can turn it off. You've got control. You don't have to hire staff. You don't have to work with this partner and have to build out. And I, and I just, I think that's what's great about 
there's so many options and there's so many ways to win and everybody has their own goals. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to compare ourselves to others and say, wow, they're doing this crazy growth. I need to do that. Yeah. And you have to remind yourself, well, like, is that what I actually want? Do I want growth? Do I want profit? Do I want time? You know, like a lot of insurance agents, it's like their fourth or fifth business and they have some like amazing business that makes five times as much money, you know, and insurance yeah. is just one thing. And then there's other people like myself where insurance is the main business and I've got like, you know, the consulting on the side. So I think it's just always remembers like, you know, understand what your finish line looks like, understand what success looks like for you, understand the goals you have, the game you're playing, and, and, I, and know that that's okay if it changes. You know, it might change every year. And it probably will change right. frequently, and it probably should change because, right, the natural, like, right, your priorities are different throughout different points in your life, right? Absolutely. You know, you start a business, you're not married, you don't have kids, then you do, right? You need more security because now other people rely on you. And then, you know, you're you're approaching retirement or whatever it is. Like, th this is just kind of like the natural order of things to an extent. So, yeah, I think we all need to like really know. And that's probably, I think it's probably a good starting point before anyone calls either of us about anything Absolutely. is like, what's your goal? Like, what is your end game? And there's no right answers, no wrong answer. Correct. There's probably a lot of similar answers and there's probably a few like very unique answers. Um, but knowing what your goal is, I think is, is mission critical to helping someone like Lead Clinic or Next Call Club help you. For a, a level of clarity for our listeners, you know, your primary consulting business in Next Call Club is building these SDRs for agencies. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just tell us a bit on like what your process is, how you do that? Like, you know, give us like you sure. know, a, a sales pitch yeah. of, of how so, you would explain it. Like I said, there's like two core parts of the business. One is me just doing one-on-one -on -one consulting with agents. And it's really just about getting a really good handle on their numbers, getting their processes kind of in line to, to scale and grow and take that next step, right? Maybe that involves an acquisition. Maybe that's organic growth, but that's all. that. And so I do some of that. Um, and I am picky with with who I decide to work with because I want to make sure that if I do work with them, I, my goal is to return 10 times in value what they've paid me, right? Yeah. And if I don't think I can give them that, I try not to take them on. I'll refer them out. The outbound um, part of the business, the outbound team is is really the core business. And we, you know, we do it two different ways. We can help you build it inside your agency. Um, you know, we're a little bit more strict on the size, the makeup of the agency, you know, we typically want to see that you have like some type of office manager or sales manager to help you kind of implement this because, you know, we have a prescription and you need to follow the prescription or it's not going to work. And, yeah. you know, we're not unaware that, of the amount of money that you're investing in this, right? It's like, you might not be paying, like, we don't, we think our price is very reasonable, but there's other costs beyond our price, like the staff themselves or the weeds that you might feed them or the technology that you decide to invest in, right? You're building a program inside your agency. You're making a large investment. So we're not unaware of that. So if you're the right size and makeup in your agency, we'll, we'll say, hey, do you want to build it yourself uh, or do you want us to do, do it turnkey for you? What we do for most agents nowadays is we'll do it turnkey. So we hire the person or we recruit, we hire, background check them, give them equipment, get everything set up, train them, and they just kind of roll. You know, it's your phone system, it's your leads, it's your list, but we manage the person. We charge a flat service fee for that and then pass the wage and benefits on to you. Okay. And, you know, it's it's been really successful. Like we have um, a couple people we just started a couple weeks ago and we were, we were just doing the ROI on their numbers. And uh, we've got a Florida agent who's realizing like 1250 per transfer, which is just 
incredible, much yeah. less in their first month. Um, you know, I don't want to say that everybody gets that in their first month or at all. You know, our goal is to get you at $20 or less is really like, you know, over time, another agents, you know, kind of in the $21, $22 mark in the first month. And, you know, that's just the best kind of feeling is that, you know, we control the whole process um, in some cases and in other cases we help you build it. What we're, our main goal is to say, hey, we want to get your cost per quote down, your cost, you know, therefore that's going to push your cost per item down. We want to keep your salespeople busy on the phone and kind of give you a little bit more control over the process rather than just, you know, buying calls and paying 70, 80, 90, $100 in some case. And then will this always be the same SDR that works for them? Do you have like SDRs? It's specific to that person's account or no? So we try to keep, we try to keep the SDR consistent. And so what we always tell people is, look, um, if that person wants to like move on or move up, then we're not going to stop them from doing that. We are a hundred percent invested in helping employees grow again, whether that's with us or without us. I talk about that all the time. I want to help people hit their goals. Um, I think that if you help people hit their goals, they tend to stick around. And if the only reason they'll leave is if they, they don't think they can hit their goals. And that's not always, you know, by design. Sometimes that's just how it is. You know, one of our employees who, you know, really well, just got a job as an air traffic controller. We can't give him that, right? Like we, (laughs) we could give him everything but that. Right. Um, and we're, and we're super happy for him, but what we tell the agent is, look, we want to develop this person. We want to help them grow. And if that can be on your account, we will keep them there. So yeah. like, I'll give you an example. The person in Florida who's seen like 1250 per transfer, um, their caller just came out of the gate and just crushed it. And so we went to them after like two weeks. We're like, hey, we need to give this person like a couple bucks an hour raise. And I'm like, and they're like, if you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. We'll get you somebody new and somebody else will pay for it or we'll pay for it. You know, we'll put it in our agency. People don't really have a problem because at the end of the day, we show them the math and a dollar an hour is like 250 bucks a month. And I think sometimes people think a oh, dollar an hour, two dollars an hour. And it's like all arbitrary. It's kind of like that valuation chart that we talked about. It's yeah. like, oh, I don't know if someone's worth that. But if you actually look at the dollars and cents, you're like, wow, that's nothing for like somebody who's doing so well. And so we try to keep it consistent because they kind of become like a part of the team. And we encourage the agent to include them on sales meetings, even though we're managing them, even though we're dealing with everything. And like we treat them just like any other employee, help them grow. But we say, try to integrate them into your agency too. And we'll try to keep them with you as long as you're okay with us giving them raises as they deserve it. And if not, that's okay. We're going to do right by that employee because we're hiring. We're not, we don't have like 50 employees who we then assign to people. We, we contract and then go hire somebody specifically for your agency and try to fit them into that. And then these are usually remote. Always. Always. Always remote. This is one of the things we, we differ slightly on. And I don't say that because there's a right answer or wrong answer, right? I, I think it's, I think my answer is probably more wrong than yours is here um, because I think it's a lot of it's just like ingrained in my head and I'm trying to like get it out. But you've embraced remote work more than probably anyone I've seen in the insurance industry thus far. Um, And it works well for you, obviously. How do you how do you make it work so well? Part of it is that we've been remote now for you know, over three years. So, you know, it, COVID brought you remote though. COVID pushed us remote and pushed or brought you like, I would you, say, I would say, remote? I would say pushed. Okay. I would say pushed. Um, so we were in, uh, Atlanta and in, in Buckhead, which is, you know, it's in the heart of it. And, um, traffic in Atlanta is not great. It's not as bad as some of the other cities, but you know, Atlanta traffic's not great. And we had some people who were commuting an hour, hour and a half each way. And so when COVID kind of came around and it was like February of 2020, um, it kind of, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. And of course. so I think we put out like a, a message or an email and said, hey, if you feel like uncomfortable or like even slightly concerned, 
just, you know, don't come in, just work from home. You know, because everybody had laptops. Okay. We have like 50 employees in the insurance agency and like four came in, of course, right? Four <laughs> came in and we're like, okay, like let's just close the office then. Yeah. Um, so we did that. And, you know, I preferred in person that most of the managers preferred in person. And I think part of that is like just preference. You know, I think I just like the camaraderie of being in an office and kind of like shooting the shit with people yeah. throughout the day and getting to know people. It's a lot, you have to be a lot more intentional to get to know people in a, in a remote environment. Second, I think there's a level of comfort of seeing people working. I think a lot of managers don't want to admit that because it sounds bad, but I mean, I'll admit it, right? There's a comfort in that. So we went remote. Uh, it quickly became very clear that like COVID wasn't going to be over by summer. Like everybody <laughs> said, right? Like the, yeah, it wasn't going to be over. Um, so I remember talking to the team, just being like, guys, like we need to figure out how we recruit, hire, train remote, right? Cause we're not going to slow this train down. And so we did it and the team started posting record numbers. And so like 2021 comes around, everyone starts bringing people back to the office. And I think we put out like a poll or something that said like, how many of you would be happy to come back to the office? It was like 10%. I was like, ugh. And yeah. I was like, how many of you would actively consider looking for another job if you had to come back to the office? It was like 60%. Wow. And so I was like, okay, the people have spoken. Yeah. You know, it's not what a lot of the managers want, but it's what the it's what the team wants. So we yeah. just kind of went in on it, embraced it, and and just went all in and never looked back. And so today, you know, the insurance agency's full remote, like I said, about 50 employees, um, and we're posting record numbers and you know, we're not on Zoom all day. We're not on Google all day. Uh, we have a chat system and we do morning huddles for 10 minutes. And, you know, we have some things that we do to kind of stay social. But you'd be surprised how people feel like the culture's really good. Like, they're like even in a remote environment, like the vibes are good. The culture's good. I feel like I know my coworkers. We've had people, we had two guys um, who went to Israel together, never met each other and just went on this trip together. Wow. We've had people like fly to Atlanta and go to Braves games together, like on their own dollar. And so I, I think that I said this on Facebook or uh, not on Facebook, on LinkedIn the other day. And I, and I've got I have a commercial real estate guy who, you know, we kind of poke at each other <laughs> and he's always, you know, talking like, you know, pro office, anti work from home. And I'm obviously pro work from home because I do yeah. it. He definitely does kind of like the engagement bait thing, right? He's purposely like a little crunchy to try to get people to like comment yeah. on it, which, you know, is a good strategy. And I finally said to him, I was, like, I was like, you know, man, I was like, the only people I see advocating for return to office are commercial real estate <laughs> professionals. So weird, right? And then he posted this thing. Um, it was like, um, work from home risks to wipe out $800 million of value from the commercial real estate. And I was like, I, I did like the thing at the bottom. I said, uh, investors miscalculating office demand risk to wipe out 800 million, fixed it for you. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just like an interesting conversation that it went from like work from home is not as good as in office to now it's like, Oh, well, you know, they're ruining a whole industry. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, maybe take responsibility for your actions, yeah. right? We, we all make our choices and maybe you shouldn't have gotten that five-year balloon loan, you know? Yeah. When money's cheap and greed is high and yep. people get burned, it happens, right? But I I, I do think there there's a place for for in-office work. I really do. Um, I think there's room for work from home. And, and, and I think what's important to know is that it's not one size fits all. It works for us. But we've definitely had employees say, I, I want to be in an office and they've left and gone to an agent that is an office. And so- you know, yeah. it's about finding the right people. And I think after COVID, you saw a lot of people quitting, right? It was like, oh, everyone's quiet quitting or there's like a great resignation or whatever. Sure. And I, I don't think that it was people, they're like, oh, people are rethinking their life. And I, and I don't think that is necessarily true. I think it was a, you had some offices going in person, you had some offices going remote. And I think you just had a movement of people trying to get 
to what their preference was and was a better fit for them, you know? And some people just prefer one over the other or hybrid or, you know, and that's that. Yeah. And, and, you know, in Atlanta where you might commute an hour each way, that really sucks. But if you're in a smaller town where your commute's 10 minutes, that might not be a problem. Yeah. So. I think being adaptable and being flexible is a good thing. And I forgot after all this time that, that you are one of my favorite people on LinkedIn. I tell um, Thanks, a, man. A, a friend of uh, someone we both know, right? Uh, Pooja Amin from Traveling yes. Amin, right? I tell her all the time, I'm like, Pooja, it's entertaining on LinkedIn because sometimes like you get like feisty and Andrew does too. And that's yeah. why I like it. I'm like, yeah. this is, this is good. It keeps it interesting and I love it. Um, so I saw that the other day actually, and I was laughing. I'm like, you know what? He's giving it right back to this guy yeah. as he should. So um, if you're not following Andrew, you should be um, on Facebook and Thanks LinkedIn. And everyone. Of course, yeah. of course. So the final thing that I'll ask you is what would you tell an agent who? isn't to the level you can help them at today. Um, you know, in these hour long calls that you might, you know, try and give them some basic advice. Like I'm not asking for strategy or anything more yeah. mindset. Like what's, what's your advice to them just as a small business owner? I'd say a couple things. One, right. Kind of back to what I said before is like, know the game you're playing and understand that that game might change from year to year and, and know that you have a choice on what game you want to play. So that's the first thing. Second is try to know those three basic numbers, right? Try to understand your cost per acquisition, the, the lifetime of the customer, and then how long it takes you to break even. Try to figure those three things out. Um, somebody can reach out to me. I'm, I'll happily give them the equations. It's probably on my LinkedIn or Facebook somewhere. Um, and, then, and then the third thing is that I say a lot of this to newer agents, but I know that it might not all be newer agents. The first three years are incredibly tough. It's going to be hard. Just know that, like especially if you're starting scratch. Um, but even if you're buying a book, like the first three years is like, there's just a lot of nuance in the insurance industry and there's, you know, you're, you're trying to be, you're trying to grow, you're trying to work on the business. Sometimes you're working in the business. So like the first three years are tough. And then what I always say to people is if you can do whatever the hell you can to get over five or 6 million in premium, yep, it gets so much easier when you do that. You start to make enough revenue to start to, uh, start to be able to start investing in some what I would call moonshots, right? Some some maybes, right? You don't have to only bet on sure things. You can take a bunch of maybes. Mm -hmm. Your risk tolerance can go up and you start to pay yourself a, a little bit better of a salary because a lot of people don't take a salary or take a very meager salary the first few years because they're trying to sustain that growth. So what I would just say is like, you know, it's going to be hard the first few years no matter what, but do whatever the hell you can to get over that 5 million mark because it gets, starts to get a lot easier after that point. Amazing. Andrew, thank you. It's been a pleasure Thanks, to have you on. I'd we'll awesome. love to do this again. It's great info. I know our, our viewers and listeners are going to uh, gonna love it. They'll probably many of them be reaching out to you soon. And uh, thanks for coming. It's been great. And, uh, you know, we'll have you on again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you.